Hey, trial lawyers, this is Ben Gideon. We're about to bring to you episode 22 of the Elevate podcast, season one. This is going to be our last episode of season one. We're going to take a short break for a few weeks, and then we're going to come back with a whole new season, season two. We've already got some great shows and great guests lined up, so we're looking forward to that. And Rahul and I just want to thank all of you so much for making our first season of this show such a great success. We started out with no followers and uh, no downloads. And by the end of our season, we were one of the most downloaded shows on Apple Podcasts for trial lawyers in the entire country. So thanks so much. I've heard from so many of you. For those of you who haven't yet, we'd love to have you join our uh, Facebook group. Just send a request through the Facebook page or the group, and we will admit you to join that group. We're hoping to turn that into more of a community to keep our discussion going after the show. And if you're willing to sign on and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts, um, write up a, a little review of your thoughts about the show, it would mean a lot to both me and, and to Raul. So we really appreciate it. Uh, great fun in season one. Looking forward to talking to all of you back here again in season two. Today's episode of the Elevate Podcast is brought to you by the Expert Institute, Smart Advocate, and Hype Legal. The Expert Institute is your one-stop shop for all things relating to experts to help you prepare and try your case. They help you find the right expert, finding experts in each different subspecialty, introducing you to multiple people for each position so that you can pick the best, and helping you with opposition research of the other side's experts. To check them out, go to the Expert Institute. Dot com. Smart Advocate is the case management system used by my firm to manage all of our cases and used by lots of plaintiffs' firms all over the country. It's won many awards for best case management software. Check them out at smartadvocate.com. I think you'll like using it. And Hype Legal, great firm for website design, digital marketing. Uh, give them a call. Micah and Tyler over there will help you out. They're great friends of ours and great friends of trial lawyers all over the country. So check them out at hypelegal.com. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm Ben Gideon. And I'm Rahul Ravi Pudi. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. How are you today? It's very early where you are, why don't you? It's a little past 5 a.m. You know, it's, uh, you know, I've been up for seven hours now. No, I'm totally kidding. Just woke up. I've got bedhead. One of my favorite parts of this show is we never know episode to episode where you're going to be. <laughs> where are you today? I am in my home office today. So uh, out in Pasadena. It looks a little different than the minivan. Than the minivan. We did the minivan with Nick Riley, John, because um, I couldn't find a quiet spot anywhere in my house. <laughs> so got the third meeting of our Patriots and Bills this coming Saturday. You know, I, I predicted the Bills were going to win round two. Um, round three is a little bit more difficult to to handicap. Where do you come down on that? Well, you know, as a true fan, it's I live on hope. And so I just hope we win. But looking back on it, this is the data that I've, I, the only articles I read are Bills articles. And it looks like uh, after Tom Brady left, you guys are one in three against us. But that one game was this season, and it was a home game in Buffalo. And we're coming into a home game in Buffalo again. So I think it's a coin flip. I know we're going to talk to the data guy in a second, but I, I would argue you have to take the Cam Newton year out of the data. I think it kind of skews 
skews things. But um, well, good luck. Good luck on Saturday. I'm I'm rooting. I'm I'm rooting for the Pats, but I I won't be sad if the Bills win. I'll feel good for you. Oh, thanks, Ben. Uh, I'm rooting for the Bills, and I will be sad if uh, the Pats win. So, <laughs> this is the Elevate Podcast, where trial lawyers learn, share, and grow. Let's talk about how we can elevate our trial practices, law firms, and lives. And now, here are your hosts, coming to you from coast to coast, trial lawyers, Ben Gideon and Rahul Ravipudi. We're thrilled today to, to welcome John Campbell. John is the founder and owner of Empirical Jury, a company that helps trial lawyers by using what's called big data to assist in uh, preparation and planning for trials. He's also a law professor at University of Denver Law School. Uh, John, welcome. Do you want to weigh in on the uh, uh, Bills-Pats game this Saturday before we get into things? Yeah. Well, you know, like any any good uh, data person, while you were talking, I was looking at the analytics uh, because I was curious what the what the predictions are. But I see that you know the odds makers put the Bills at plus four, and the I was looking at the analytics model. The Bills are a favorite there too. Um, I guess probably just watching this season, I would say that I would take the Bills uh, in a close game. You heard it here first, guys. This is fantastic. I'm not even watching the game now. I'm not going to watch it. I don't, it's think over. You, I don't think you need to study big data to know the Bills are probably the better team this year. Um, but still, it's hard to count Belichick and the Pats out of any game. So we'll see how it goes. So, John, why don't you just – could you start by just giving us a primer on – who you are and what you do and what, what is big data for those that have not yet been uh, initiated? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try to do that briefly. The, the thumbnail that probably ties into what we do is uh, I, I'm a trial lawyer. I identify as a lawyer first. Um, I started as a trial lawyer in the city of St. Louis, working with a, a really good attorney named John Simon, trying some injury cases, but also I ended up running a class action department doing consumer fraud and some other things. It's funny. I was drinking my, 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 my coffee this morning. I was drinking out of the John Simon firm mug that I just received in the mail as a Christmas gift. Yeah. You got the Simon law firm Christmas present. There's been some good ones, gym bags, umbrellas, coffee mugs. I mean, I was always pretty excited to get the present even when I was working there. Uh, so, yeah. So, uh, you know, John's an inner circle guy, really good lawyer. Learned a lot there. And then I took a job at the University of Denver uh, as a law professor. Um, and I learned, I started bumping into people who were doing research, not, I mean, some in the legal field, but a lot in other fields. Uh, and what I noticed right away is when they talked about how they did research, a lot of times they weren't talking about what I'd sort of learned in Psych 101 or something, right? They, they weren't talking about bringing people into the lab. They weren't using their grad students. Um, they were using online populations. And that got me interested, originally thinking, well, hey, maybe maybe we could study you know, some of the open questions in law or tort reform issues or jury instructions or evidence rules. Uh, and we could use more people. And there was some obvious appeal to, to that. Um, I found out there's this little cadre of, of people, academics, that do study jurors. There's probably you could count on certainly on two hands, the really well-known ones that do it well. Um, and I got to know them all. I just started calling and talking and saying, hey, I'm new to this. I'm a lawyer turned law professor. And what I found out pretty quickly is, is that there are tools now where if you want to understand what people do with a case, you don't always have to bring them in. Right. And you don't always have to just zoom with 10 of them. There are ways to do what looks more like an online survey 
where all of a sudden you can talk to hundreds or even thousands of people. And, you know, without going too far, I think there's some intuitive understanding in most people that if you can talk to more people, first of all, you're just going to get a lot of variety of opinion. And so you can feel pretty good that you're you're getting the full scope of possible opinions about a case or issue. Uh, but then also you can do a lot of things that with data, because you have enough samples and enough data points that you can start calculating some things and having some certainties that you can't with 10. And when I explain this to people, I always just say, look, think about medical studies, right? Um, if we did a medical study, you know, hot topic now, something like vaccines of any kind, if you studied it on a population of 10 people, you could not draw any reliable conclusions about its efficacy, its risks, or anything else. But if you study it on a couple thousand people, not only can you get some pretty precise measures of its efficacy and risks, you could also break that into subpopulations and say, is it different for different age groups or races or people with certain genetic conditions? Um, you could, right, give some people medicine A and some people medicine B and some people no medicine in a traditional blinded study and compare results. Well, we can do a lot of those same things in the law. And so, I don't know, if we think of like lawyering as the art and science of lawyering, I would say I'm heavy on the science side. Why do you think you are heavy on the science side? What in your personality brought you in that direction? I think it wasn't so much in my personality, right? So I was always, you know, I was I was a guy who was probably more drawn to English than math, to, you know, to sort of soft sciences and to literature. But um, I think all of us who do that lawyer and handle cases and try cases want the best information. And one thing that stood out to me, it sort of hit me a few times, is that sometimes I was making decisions on cases that could be worth, you know, millions of dollars based on the opinions of 10 people. And I always tell people like, if, if you went to Google and said, hey, we want you to make a really big decision about your business direction. So here's how you're gonna do it. You're gonna get 10 people and they're gonna look at your, your ideas and then you'll just do what they say, right? That would, they would like throw you out, right? Um, and so I think part of it was a hunger to, to build a better mousetrap for our own cases. So the first cases I ever studied wasn't to start a business. It was uh, a case with John Simon actually that, that he had uh, and, and one of my wife's cases, who's also a lawyer. And we were just trying to ask, can we get better answers and how? Uh, because we had done the in-person stuff, which I think has value. I'm not disparaging it at all, but it has limitations, as everybody knows. Um, and we wanted to see if we could do something else. And, and so we borrowed from others and, and that, that we, we, started, we stumbled onto something we liked. And then John Simon invited me out to the inner circle to present about it. And actually uh, another guy I knew from Colorado, Jim Gilbert, uh, had, uh, they kind of co-invited me out. And from there, we got to start studying some cool cases. And as we did, I think we, it became clearer and clearer to us that there was something, there was a there there, right? And so we've worked for years now to try to figure out how to do it a little better. What, what do you think the, the best uses of big data are and what are the limitations? What are the areas right so far where maybe it doesn't, it, it isn't as helpful. The best use in some ways is, so So maybe best use, I don't want to sound like it's great for everything, but I mean, in the sense that if you take a full case presentation and present it to enough people, I always like to tell people that, look, if you didn't know anything about data and if we didn't do any data, just the fact that you would get detailed feedback from hundreds of people about your case is very helpful because you can already start to say, man, every time somebody likes the defense case, they keep bringing up these three things and I keep seeing it over and over again and I got to deal with that. Um, you can check your own blind spots because sometimes if you ask three or 400 people, 
you'll realize that they keep caring about something you wish no one cared about and something you think is a shiny, bright piece of evidence. They just don't give a damn. Uh, and so, I mean, in some ways, if you took the data out of it, a lot of feedback is good. Um, it, it, we have so many intellectual biases to believe our own bullshit that, um, you know, that alone is pretty good. Add the data stuff. And I think it's really good for getting a sense of where your case is and how you can make it better. It's also really good for figuring out how to pick more sort of optimal jurors and value the case. I think the, the limitations actually come in understanding how you have to do that. So, for example, I get people who ask me pretty often to do an issue focus group or an issue big data study. And they say, look, I'm really concerned about this one issue. And sometimes I make them, I think I frustrate them when I say, I get it, but we have to build the whole case, including the damage model, including the entire defense. And they go, no, 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 no. Listen, I just want to study this one issue about whether my client's bad behavior matters. And what I always say is, like, yeah, but, but that's like saying, do you like potatoes? Do you like mustard? Do you like eggs? Do you like whatever? And then if they say, yes, say you must like potato salad. It doesn't work that way, right? We have, to, we have to study the whole thing because jurors are complex and so are cases. And so a, one limitation of big data is it's sort of all or nothing, right? You got to build the whole case out. And that means that if you want accurate predictions, the quality of that presentation matters a lot. And it's very hard to do early in a case because if you do it before discovery is closed, you could spend a lot of time and energy and some money, get really great predictions and then drop in a new piece of evidence that would radically alter everything from which jurors you should seat to how that case is going to perform. And, and just to play that out one more step, you could change something in the damage model, but it would be fallacy. It would be, be completely wrong to think, okay, well, crap, that might change my damage predictions. No, no, no. It may change the win rate, the likelihood of winning by 10 or 20%, right? Because there's a fusion there. And so that's probably the hardest part of big data is the case needs to be ready. It takes a lot of hard work and it requires sort of an all or nothing approach. It, it, it's not something you can sort of dabble in. Before getting into the specifics, you talked about win rate. How confident are you in your methodology assessing a win rate? So two sort of maybe two ways to look at that. First of all, we have just a lot of cases that have gone to trial. So I would say I'm more confident now than I was you know, two or three years ago. Uh, because we've just had so many cases go to trial that we can look. So, for example, we've had a few cases where the plaintiff win rate, the percentage of jurors voting for the plaintiff, is below 50%. And that's after some tinkering, some working, trying to improve it. There are just some facts in some cases that jurors can't get past, right? Uh, and if you can't change them, sometimes you can't drive the win rate. And in those cases, we had a few of those go to trial. One, because it was no offer. And one, because I won't name the, the person that they were doing the best they could, but it was an attorney who turned down a settlement offer and said, I think I can just beat the numbers. Well, in those cases, the plaintiff lost them both. Um, and I never like for somebody we're working with to lose, but in some way it validates the model, right? I mean, if you, if you think that they should lose and they win, you're doing something wrong. Um, we've had a number of cases that have gone to trial between a 50 and sort of 65% win rate. And what we had thought was that that probably means they're roughly a coin toss. And what we've seen play out is that they are. We've had a number of cases go to trial above a 65% win rate. And we've had out of dozens above that where we would say the plaintiff should win almost all the time. They've got two thirds of jurors. They, in fact, have won all the time with the exception of one case, which is sort of within the model. So we, we feel pretty good in ranges. 
can I can I ask you about those those three categories? The kind of I guess clear losers or dogs of cases, the toss up cases, and then the kind of clear winners. If you were to ask the lawyers handling those cases, or just people kind of generally familiar with them before the big data analysis, how they would categorize them? Would they have put them into those same categories in your view? Or do you think that the data study revealed something about them that was counterintuitive to the people working on them? I think probably about half the time counterintuitive. Um, and, And so, and sometimes that's just a degree, right? Sometimes, and this is the best news, somebody comes and says, God, I'm so worried about these three things that the defense keeps putting up and I'm afraid they're going to get traction. And then we run it and I get to get to say, hey, jurors aren't buying. I just sent one out yesterday where the plaintiff kind of made an admission on the scene of an auto accident and sort of said something like this could have been my fault. And the defense attorney, I mean, the plaintiff's attorney was like, really worried about it. Like, is, are the jurors going to lock into that and either vote against me or give my client half the fault? We played that. It was on tape. We, we did it all. And what we found was it didn't matter much. And so that was a situation where I think the attorney was unduly concerned. Um, I think the harder news is we've certainly had a good number of cases where in talking to the attorney, they thought they had a pretty lights out case. Uh, and we ran it and had to have you know the report and then a call where we said, it, that's not the situation, at least right now. And here's why. The good news is, is you can almost always see why. Now, if we're talking about like sort of can you predict your data, the other thing I'd tell you is that attorneys are, I think, pretty bad, including myself, at predicting what evidence matters most within a case. That that we find lots of surprises. And then value, I mean, you might as well throw a dart uh, because what attorneys think a case is worth and what they think they ought to ask for is very rarely what test out is optimal. I think that's where we are probably all the worst because it's just a more complex prediction. And what's the exercise in identifying uh, an appropriate ask on a case? Is it uh, just putting it out to the audience or do you actually make the ask and see what the uh, reaction is? We, we make the ask in the states that allow it, right? So we won't simulate that if we can't. So, you know, if it can't be done. So, for example, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, D.C., some places where you can't make an, a non-economic damage request, we won't simulate that because it's useless but in states where you can, um, what we'll do is we'll do what's called A-B testing. Um, you know, one third of the jury will, see, jury will see one request, one third of the jury will see another, and one third of the jury will see another. Often we test three. And of course, the jurors don't know that's happening. They're blinded to that manipulation. Um, and everything else they see is identical. And we have really big samples. So with a little bit of statistical knowledge, you can look at it then and say, if we see a difference between A, B, and C, is it statistically significant? If it is, then we can start to say, hey, uh, this damage request is producing the optimal result. And I would just mention, when I say that, people always think, oh, it gets the highest number. Not always. Sometimes what you're asking for in damages is dramatically impacting the percentage of jurors who vote for liability. Um, So we see in some cases that if you overreach on damages, both in number or in category, you try to ask for some piddly economic damage that's kind of a reach. What we'll see is that some, the win rate will start to fall. And that's likely because jurors are on the fence. It's a hard case on liability. And then they get a greed trigger or like a not credible trigger. 
And the easiest thing for them to do is not to think through that for another hour. It's to vote no on liability. And so when we study damages, we love to figure out what's the most, you know, what gets the most money. But we're also trying to figure out how high can you go before you destroy your case? Or are you going so low that jurors don't get it and think you don't believe in your own case and you're hurting it that way? My dad did that exact same thing uh, on a jury. He was on a federal jury. He didn't tell me about it until he was done. But uh, the lawyer on that case asked for too much money. And when he was in the jury room, he thought it was a dicey liability case, but he was going to lean in favor of, of the plaintiff. But everybody wanted to award too much money and it shut him down. So he hung the jury. Yeah, it's, uh, it's something that we see. You know, it's interesting. We were talking about those win rates. If you think about those bans, you can sort of throw out the below 50% because those cases should not be tried unless they must be. But the 50 to 65% cases, what's interesting is, a, you know, a 50% win rate and a 70% win rate aren't really only 20% difference. A 50% win rate is you're going to win the case half the time or probably less because there's a real dogfight in deliberation. A 70% win rate, you're almost always going to win it, right? And so what's interesting is that difference could be made up almost entirely by the amount requested and how you treat damages, which we don't often think of. So to me, it's both comforting in the data, but a little scary to think that you could try a really good case. You could have jurors like your dad who are on the fence. You could simply overreach on damages a little bit. And, w- and what that does is not hurt your damage case. It changes the outcome, right? And it was one decision of thousands in the case, but it's one that jurors really f- focus in on a lot. Yeah, I listened to you talk about this in your uh, trial lawyer university speech, which was excellent, by the way. I highly recommend it. Um, and we talked to Sean Claggett a little bit about that on his podcast episode. The, the concept that we all as plaintiff's lawyers historically have come up with what to ask for for money based on gut instinct or intuition or some other uh, you know, minor data points – and could be leaving, in some cases, tens of millions of dollars on the table, or the reverse, we could be overreaching, um, or we could be advising our clients to turn down settlement offers they should be taking. I mean, when you start to think of it from that perspective, it almost seems like, I hate to use the term, but it almost seems like malpractice not to know something more about the data. Um, But I, and then I started thinking the opposite, though, what if you utilize the data and you turn down a great offer because the data comes back telling you the you know result will be better and it isn't. Then you're kind of in the opposite <laughs> dilemma. So just to thinking about your thoughts about the, the, the overlap between the data and the kind of moral, ethical, and advisory decisions you have to make in these cases. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think one, you asked about limitations of data. I mean, one One thing that's absolutely true of data and law, I think in all fields, is it gives us more information, but it does not give us absolute certainty, right? And that's kind of what you're getting at. I think of it like this, and this is like a a simple example, but how I often think of it is if you were playing blackjack, since we're talking about Sean Claggett in Las Vegas, I mean, if you're playing blackjack and you have 18 and you don't hit it, that's the right decision. But the dealer could still flip 20 and you could lose. Now, you didn't do anything wrong. You got beat against the odds. So in my view, 
if you have as much information as you can from big data, other sources, your own education, intuition, experience, knowing your own venue, and you say to your client, hey, the average value of this case is eight million and they've offered six. I would suggest that we go and try to get the average or better than average value uh, because if we're just playing the numbers, this is like 18 in blackjack. We shouldn't hit it. Now, could you have a random weird day? Yeah, we can't fully exclude those, but you made the decision on the information. And if you think about the, the alternative, it's almost as untenable, right? Either to not have the information and just guess for your client or to have the information and ignore it. So I think we have to accept the limitations of knowledge and the, and the limitations of our field, uh, which is that we still have humans doing it. Unfortunately, in my view, we also still have very small juries because a lot of what we talk about in randomness of jury decision-making is really repeating the small number problem, which is that juries are small. And so by definition, on a given day, you could get some sort of weird result that's the equivalent of getting you know, eight heads out of 10 when you flip a quarter. Y you could, but it's weird, just like you could seat a jury that's not representative of the population or the likely result, and it could come out really weird. That's not going to happen often, but it's going to happen sometimes. Yeah, to that point about the the representation, I'm curious your thoughts on how do you, through the survey process, ensure that the participants in that are representative of, of the jury population? Because when we're, we're working on a case together, one thing you mentioned to me, which I, I think um, certainly hits home, is when we do focus groups, for example, I'm always a little skeptical of them because they're people who volunteer to spend four hours with us drive to some location and be fed bad food or, or get on a Zoom call nowadays and listen to a case. But a lot of people wouldn't volunteer to do that. And the people that come to, to real juries, some of the many, they're there by compulsion. And so by definition, people who participate in surveys self-select to, to be interested in doing surveys, right? So how do you solve that problem of you know, representation of the population. Yeah. Well, part of it is you can solve and part of it's a little bit of luck. And then there, and then part of it is you have to accept um, some challenges. So one is like what you've defined, what you've identified, this sort of selection effect, unfortunately exists in any human study, right? It's just the fact that we can't measure the folks that won't let us measure them. Uh, and, and if that population, so the first question in any research design, right, is if are the people that I can't measure likely to be radically different? So one question would be, do people who don't like to do surveys or who don't like to do in-person focus groups, is there something really different about them? Um, I can tell you over years of, of our work, but also social science research, there's some pretty good evidence that they're not, like that the willingness or unwillingness to do a study is not a characteristic that fundamentally sort of makes people different. Um, so that's kind of lucky, but it seems to be true. Another thing is, is like, if you do online work, you're going to have to accept that you're not going to get people who aren't online. That's becoming less and less of a problem, but it certainly exists. In our line of work, that hasn't proved to be much of a problem because in jury deliberation, what we know about the science from a lot of good research is that people who tend to maybe say, 
be less educated or have less access to technology. Um, that usually is correlated heavily with being a little less educated, often poor. Um, and those people, by and large, are not driving ultimate decisions in juries. For better and worse, we know that people who are used to leading, uh, people who have higher education and income levels, uh, males to some degree, whites to some degree, um, have more weight in jury deliberation. And some of that's improper, but it's what happens. And so in some ways, not measuring somebody who doesn't still have Wi-Fi or a phone or some way to take a study, um, you're missing them, but you might not be missing somebody who will alter the result dramatically. Um, the last really hard hurdle then is just, what about venues that don't look anything like a national sample? Fortunately, the technology and the ability to sort of survey has gotten good enough uh, that you can really sort of target what you think your venue will be like. You can target your venue or you can sort of replicate your venue. And those things have gotten reasonably easy to do. So walk us through what's your what's your method and um, so that all of us can kind of understand what you do and in, in either by example or otherwise. Yeah, I mean, the simple at the simplest level, you know, somebody comes to us and says, I've got a case. I want to understand it better. I want to figure it out. Great. So we're going to meet with the attorney and talk about the case. Um, and then we're going to say, all right, let's put together a presentation of evidence for the plaintiff and for the defense. We don't do a neutral statement because that's not what jurors do. Our, our, one of our cardinal rules is let's try to make the jurors do what real jurors do. So since real jurors have to pick a side and they hear competing narratives, we want that too. We're going to put together a plaintiff and defense case. Those are going to look like when they're all done, the jurors are going to experience them almost like they're on a website um, with they're going to read some. They're going to look at images and diagrams, or you can imagine all the visual evidence and trials. And then they're going to watch any number of videos that could range from animations to day in the life videos to depot clips. We're going to work to work with the attorney to make sure that those are accurate and complete, but also concise. Uh, and when we're all done with that, we're going to show them to jurors. Jurors, from their perspective, they're not looking to be jurors. They're people that are looking online for odd jobs or work. Um, and one of the jobs they'll find that day would be to be a mock juror. And that helps us not get like professional jurors. Right. Uh, and it helps us get people that weren't thinking that day about being a juror, which is a little more like getting called to be a juror. Right. Like you that's not what you do all the time. You got called to go do it this one time. A lot of our workers have been a mock juror once and that's it. And that we, we like that. And so then they're going to sign a they're going to click on and click through a nondisclosure. Uh, they're going to click through some explanations. They're going to tell us a lot about themselves. And when I say a lot, I mean, what do you watch on TV and do you own guns and what are your politics and uh, a lot of demographic information? We use that partially as an attention check uh, because we can ask them to repeat those answers later. And if their answers don't match, we know they weren't being honest or they were in a rush. They're going to interact with the case like we talked about. We're going to check to make sure they did that and they understood it. If they if they pass all those sort of tests, they're going to vote on the case and then you get to do cool stuff like you can. When they vote for the defense, you can route them to screens that dig into why uh, everything from quantitative stuff like rank the defense arguments as most important to least important to qualitative stuff like tell us what the plaintiff would have to do to change your mind. Um, and then we're going to get the results. And when we have the results, we have a lot of of ways to work with them statistically and to make sure the data sound. Um, and then our, you know, maybe the hardest work is getting that into a form that is usable for attorneys, but is also rich with the detail that might let them make real adjustments in the case. 
How long is the presentation for the each side? It varies. Um, I, I would say we like to be somewhere around a 30 to 40 minute total presentation, which people always say, well, that sounds short. But what I'll tell you is what we found over time is that if we force ourselves to distill the case, even complex cases can get there. And it's sort of the old adage, like I wrote you a letter. If I'd had more time, I would have written you a shorter one. Um, we find that we find that forcing ourselves and the attorneys we're working with to keep condensing gets it to the, the sort of big moving pieces and gets us out of the weeds. Um, and we've had more predictive success on that kind of length. That works out to be something like 3,000 words per side in text. All the images always help. And then often 10 to 20 minutes of tightly edited videos. And, you know, people hear 10 or 20 minutes and sometimes they say, well, how could I do that? One witness is 20 minutes. And I go, well, no, not in our model. In our model, we're going to summarize that witness a little. Then we're going to show a couple of minutes of the witness so that jurors can make a credibility determination, which we, we know they make very quickly. And in doing that, we can show them several witnesses and an animation, right? And the accident scene footage or the workplace footage or the body cam footage or whatever. Uh, but we're, we're keeping it tight. Um, and then, you know, from there we can sort of, uh, you know, we also, I'll just mention, it's always important in these studies, if you're doing your own work, like either data work or you're doing in-person focus groups, I would highly encourage you to ask this question, which is at the end to say, who do you think sponsored this? Um, because if everybody says the plaintiff, you should then immediately go wash your brain out and forget everything they said and go home, uh, because you can't trust it. So we measure the bias rates in our studies because uh, we want to know if we have tipped our hand. Uh, and then that way we can see that if it's bad enough, we have a problem. If you see small skew, you can adjust for that. Right. But then you cannot overestimate the strength of your case based on not knowing that you told everybody it was a plaintiff case. So if you do a 30 to 40 minute presentation for each side um, and the goal is to have the focus group uh, or online survey to contain all of the important information that you're going to be presenting at trial, do you have thoughts on how long an opening statement or closing argument should be at trial? Well, I can tell you that I think you could give an opening statement in any case in 15 minutes. Um, you know, I, I'm not saying there's ne never an effective one that's longer, but with what we know about juror attention, I think everything counsels towards faster trials. I can tell you we've, we've seen some cases and studied some cases where the length of the trial itself adversely impacted one side or the other. And sometimes we'll, we'll call jurors afterward if we've really, really been deeply involved in the case and can. Um, and we've heard that exactly. And so in my view, attention is really important. I will tell you, so, you know, maybe you're, you're hinting at this, Rahul. I, Rahul, I mean, so here's the thing. We study cases where sometimes both sides total is 30 or 40 minutes, right? And we study some cases where the attorney doesn't have time to cut video and stuff, and it's mostly text. And, and in one of those cases, a complex med mal case, we predicted that the verdict would be $10.89 million. And the verdict was 10.8. And the jurors never saw a video. They never looked at anything but a couple of diagrams. And so a lot of this stuff that's happening at trial that we think is so important is getting distilled by jurors. A whole witness is getting distilled to a couple of key points. And what we find is if we just give them those two key points, they do the same thing, right? 
So all of that is suggested to me that like Joe and, and others like Joe Freed and folks that are on speedy trials, I think they're onto something that makes it in our modern world a lot of sense. Given the number of these studies you've done over, over the years and um, the data you've reviewed, are you starting to see trends that kind of form in, in your mind of just uh, where you see issues that kind of that repeatedly become the turning points in cases or things that are kind of the death of cases or, or. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll just give you a couple. I mean, you, you could probably go on forever. In fact, um, Sean Claggett and I are, are working on a book together and part of it is about this kind of stuff. Um, I would say that um, one that stands out and it sounds obvious, but I think we do it wrong a lot as lawyers and it's understandable why is that if you rated witnesses objectively on their neutrality, the higher their score on a neutrality scale, the more important the witness becomes every time. But if you think about it, that's not the witnesses we tend to use because we don't control them. So we tend to use our clients because we can prep them and control them. We tend to use our experts because we hire them. But so often, they're not moving the needle a lot. It is the person that has nothing. So let me give a very practical application of that then. You're working a traumatic brain injury case and you can go hire the greatest expert to do a DTI and then you can get this neuropsych and you can do all this stuff and you can put in all your very expensive experts. And if the other side puts in experts that say the exact opposite, which is of course what always happens. And then a lot of times what the jurors do is go, all right, really smart people on both sides say the opposite. I don't know what to do. And they're all hired guns. And then in walks uh, the gas station attendant and they say, yeah, the, this person, Bill, has been coming and buying gas at the station for six years. And you say, well, all right, did you know him before this event on this date? Yes, I did. And what was he like? Oh, lively, funny, always telling me jokes. He used to give me stock tips. Sometimes I'd even use them. I made money on it. Well, what's he like now? He comes in. He doesn't always know it's me. I have to help him make change. That gas station attendant just made your TBI case because he has no reason to lie. But we often, sometimes we don't go find him because it's easier to go hire the experts and talk to the wife and kids and, and, and friends. So if there was like one thing that stands out to me lately, it is that, that we have to think a lot about our witnesses and what evidence will actually persuade because jurors are incredibly sophisticated at figuring out who has uh, skin in the game and who doesn't. That's just one of them. That's important. It's, it strikes me that sometimes that that witness is the police officer in a car if it's a car crash case. It absolutely is. It's often an eyewitness, right? Uh, for whatever reason, sometimes it's uh, a coworker, but it is you know they're they're often findable. Uh, but it is, but it takes a different type of lawyer and a different type of work sometimes. What, what are some of the biggest oh. misconceptions that uh, you've seen lawyers exhibit through doing this big data? That's an interesting question. Um, well, you know, I think, I don't know if this is a misconception, but I'll just tell you that there's some great neuroscience out there that says that as people get smarter, they don't get better at being unbiased about their own views what they get better at is they get better at justifying their own views. So in some ways, intelligence is a danger, right? Because we're all wired up for what's called the confirmation bias, which most people know about, right? This, this tendency to look for information that supports our views and to get rid of information that would disprove our views. Lawyers, 
by and large are very smart. So they, you know, they have to be pretty intelligent to get where they are. But what I sometimes find is that a lawyer who's brilliant is really good at generating a really long list of all the reasons they're right and the defense position could never be believed by jurors. But they're not very good at being deeply self-critical. So what I would say is, is that one of the struggles people face in all walks of life, but is especially dangerous in law, is to get so into a case that even when you think you're thinking, you're not. Because you can't. Because you can't afford to think of that thing that would blow up the case you spent three years and a bunch of money on. So what that tells me is we have to get outside our bubbles. And that requires in-person work, talking with people that are by definition defense lawyers, talking with people that by definition are outside your social bubbles, uh, big data. There's lots of ways to do it. But I am stunned sometimes by how far down the road a person will be without ever having really had the case looked at by anybody besides their own friends and associates. Can you talk about how the bit data study can help us with jury selection? Because you're getting demographics and I'm you're assuming you're mapping that to jurors that are good or bad for the case. And then when you're there picking your jury, you're going to try to find people that are more similar to the good ones, right? Yeah. Yeah. You've, you've nailed it. I mean, so look, if it's, a lot of people are familiar with political polling. I'll just give like a, you know, a, a classic older example now. Um, you know, if you said in the last election, if I asked somebody, here's a person, they were behind a curtain. And I said, predict whether they voted for Biden or Trump. You have no information. You can't even see the person. You should say Biden, right? Because Biden received more votes than Trump. So playing the odds, you should say Biden. Now, if, if that person were smart and they said, well, John, can I just ask you like a couple of questions about the person first? And they said, are they white? Yes. Are they male? Yes. Do they have a college education? No. Now, what should they say? They should say Trump because Trump carried white males without college education by a significant number, right? Well, why, how could they make a better prediction? They had a few demographic points. The same is true for jurors, right? It's, it's true in cases that if you study a case, sometimes something about the juror's life experience or history or political views or age or income or work experience can be predictive of how they're likely to receive the case. Now, does it guarantee they'll receive the case that way? No, people are too complex, but we can play the odds. Sometimes that's demographic, but I will tell you that often it's a little more nuanced than that. So I'll give like a, just one example so that it's real. We studied a John Deere case where a U, uh, a, a U bolt broke, uh, a U joint broke. And the result was, is that the tractor kind of veered, hit somebody and killed them. It hit a, a car head on because it was on a rural road and killed them. We asked people to rate their own mechanical inclination on a scale of one to five. One being, I have no mechanical inclination. I don't touch anything mechanical. I don't understand it. I don't want to. Five, I'm really handy. Maybe I even do it for a living. I can fix most things. And when we looked at that scale, we found that as people went up one point in the scale, they became about 10% better on the win rate for the plaintiff for each step. And what we realized was people who were very mechanically inclined and viewed themselves that way, liked the case and enjoyed the engineering and product defect theory, they could dive in enough to understand it and they became better jurors for the plaintiff. So in that case, I wasn't saying, you know, go pick people that have this education or, or go pick males or females or something. We were talking about 
go and look at your jury and ask some simple questions about their life experience. And often that's what we'll find is that it's, it's more nuanced than sort of a first level look at demographics, but we always find that there are some predictors. Understanding that it, it, it's different case to case, like the one you just explained, are, are there some factors that you find predictive kind of across the board, such as uh, receptive to mask mandates or which political party somebody voted for or you know, more generic things like that? I, I think across the board would be too far, but if you had to play it blind, right? Like if you, if you couldn't do a study and tomorrow you got to go try the case, women are going to outperform men on damages three out of four times. Conservatives are going to um, be lower than liberals on damages and win rate three out of four times. Um, Age has no meaning and will vary case to case in a way that you should never consider it. Race rarely has any meaning and um, is something you should not guess on because it can invert. Education has no meaning. Um, Views on lawsuits will always have meaning. So if you investigate whether people by definition have a more tort reform or less tort reform orientation towards life, And then I'm going to give credit to the deceased and great Lee Ross. Lee Ross was a fantastic social scientist at at Stanford who passed away about a year ago or a little less. And I've had the opportunity to work with him and co-author with him. And Lee gave me this question. One time we were doing an academic study and he said, do you guys ever just ask the jury, hey, you don't know anything about the case right now. Are you a little more likely to vote for the plaintiff or a little more likely to vote for the defense? Or where are you at? And I was like, well, no. And he said, well, why not? I mean, if they have a predisposition before they know anything about the case, you found their most deep and nor- normal bias. Uh, huh. So sure enough, we threw it into the academic study of 2000 jurors. It was highly predictive. So it's my new favorite, like, maybe just try it question. Is that a question you ask, Raul? Yeah. Yeah, I thought you might. And how, how has that worked for you? Um, you know, when we're, when we're, I, I kind of focus in, jury selection on identifying biased jurors. And that's 99% of what I'm doing. And so uh, we'll do many openings here in California and in Nevada. And then, then when I start my voir dire, I have an opportunity to talk to those jurors and ask a lot of open-ended questions. And that is one of them. And I'd say about 95% of the time, the people that are clearly either visibly or through some answers um, expressing hostility towards me, will happily answer that question with their with their lean. Um, and then everybody else who's actually willing to give this case a fair shot is is saying that this is a, a an even playing field. But it's definitely a question that I ask of every single juror or prospective juror to see where they're going. And it's important also that I have to have it on a non case specific. Um, answer. So I always walk it back and and ask them the question, you know, you haven't heard anything about this case. You don't know any of the evidence yet. Where are you going on it? Yeah, I'm not liking you. I'm not liking your case. I'm not liking anything about this. Can I go home? And um, and then I'll get cause challenges. You know, what we're talking about here, if we're talking about things that like we should make sure everybody knows, what you just said, you take as truth and it is but I, I hear people sometimes say, and I get it, that lawyers say, well, you know, 
I'm just going to engineer the case so that I can reach, I can reach the jurors. And I always say, listen, like if somebody has spent the last decade telling their family, their friends, the people at the coffee shop that lawsuits are bad and that they're ruining America and that they hate seeing these verdicts and these greedy plaintiffs and plaintiff's lawyers, and they hate every plaintiff's lawyer because they're all the greedy people on TV. The idea that you can, in a trial, completely alter their worldview is, I think, incredibly naive, right? Maybe the case will be so good on liability that they'll vote with you, but they're going to hurt you on damages. Because what we know about people, Jonathan Haidt has a great book about it, is we are thinking whether we know it or not a lot about our social circle and whether we will continue to belong. And you can imagine it helps if you just imagine that person going back to the coffee shop and they go, weren't you on that jury that gave $18 million? Right. And like the shame, if you've been saying for 10 years that lawsuits are bullshit. Right. And so I, I think understanding the limitations of persuasion is something that's really important to, to think about too. And knowing that selection is a, an incredibly important part of whether you win or lose, regardless of the other, you know, sort of stuff you do right. And John, in, in the studies, when you're trying to ferret out tort reform jurors, what, do you, what have you found to be the best question to identify that? I don't know if there's one. Um, I would say it's sort of like a set. And the reason, too, is because if we're thinking about real voir dire, um, you know, if you just ask it once, there's a lot of jurors who are a little hesitant to talk. And so the good lawyers that I watch and I really respect, I think they rework the ground because it gets harder and harder for the juror to stay quiet. And so I like sort of a series that maybe starting off with, okay, this is a lawsuit. And, and um, our, you know, one of the things we're going to be asking for is non-economic damages, walking through that and then saying, you know, some people feel like why would we award these? Let's award the out-of-pocket stuff, but this doesn't do any good. It doesn't bring the person back or fix their paralysis or whatever. Some people think it's necessary. Where are you at? Great. Now, okay. Now, some of you are willing to award non-economic damages, but you know, I might, if you're allowed to say this, I might ask you for $30 million in this case. And I'd sure like to know if, you know, before you know the case, does anybody say, I'm never awarding $30 million in a single case for a single injury to a single person? That's out of bounds work on the caps a little, then, you know, all right, now I might ask you for $30 million and the burden of proof is that, you know, if I move this one sheet of paper from this pile to this pile and I'm, I'm, I'm barely over the line on damages too, that, it, that you would need to award those numbers. How many of you think that's just too low? And I think if you do that, you sort of keep it up, right? Most of them come to the top over time as, as Rahul said, either through what they say or it's important to have somebody in the courtroom who's watching body language, right? And I don't mean like reading a subtle microaggression. Or, I mean, I mean, sometimes a juror who isn't speaking starts nodding their head like, yeah, sister, that's right. And, and they don't say a word. And man, you better catch that, right? Because they may never speak up, but you got them. Um, and then, you know, you can set about figuring out what which of those jurors you know you can get rid of it, by the couple of means we have available? Hey John, you, you had sent me an article on um, jury selection that it's a data analysis you did with some of your colleagues at other universities who study juries. Uh, I will confess I, I did read it, but there's a lot in there that 
was beyond my level because it had regression models and lots of numbers and stuff, which brought me some PTSD from my college days. Um, but it sounds real sciencey and uh, impressive when you read it. But can you just tell us what the high level, um, you know, conclusions were from that and how you think that data would be valuable to trial lawyers in making the case for more robust voir dire uh, across the country? Yeah, the the background very quickly is that that we coordinated with Lee Ross, who I've mentioned as a point of reference, because some people don't know Lee's name by by name. Um, you know, Danny Kahneman, who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, Lee Ross is why Danny Kahneman came to Stanford. He recruited him. He's a social scientist of, of great fame in his own regard. He, um, the negative attribution theory and some other things he came up with. Um, we worked with Lee. We worked with Valerie Hans from Cornell and Jessica Salerno from Arizona State University, which I think I couldn't name three people who are more credible or, or careful. And we devised a study with no real intention of, we weren't sure what we'd find, but we wanted to see. What we did was we presented jurors, 2,000 jurors from across the country with one of three civil cases. I won't go into the details, but we did that so we were certain it wasn't case specific, right? We did different kinds of cases. One was a bad faith case, one was an injury case, but there were civil cases. And before the jurors did that, we asked them voir dire questions. Some of the jurors got the really thin sort of federal court voir dire, and some of the jurors got what maybe we would like to do if we we're allowed to, a more detailed voir dire on the issues and on some of the things we just talked about, tort reform issues and others. And then we took half the jurors and said, if they'd expressed any biases, we said to them with a judge in a robe, they watched a judge say, you've expressed some views that may be at odds with the instructions I give you. Can you set them aside and be fair, right? And so what we were looking for in the end, and it gets to the takeaways is we were wondering, do answers to some questions predict how jurors will behave? We figured it would, but which ones? And and then do they predict improper bias? And we found that they did. So for example, a juror who believes that there should be no non-economic damages is also three times as likely to vote no on liability. But of course that's improper because the two aren't related, right? But what, what it is, is they really don't like lawsuits. And that person, I think by any measure, should not be sitting on a jury because they're, they're three times as likely to vote not liable when the evidence is the same for everybody. They're way outside of any norm. So we found that some questions are highly predictive of bias. We found that bias flows in both directions. There are some jurors that are highly biased for the plaintiff and some that are highly biased for the defense. There's more for the defense, more bias for the defense, but there's bias on both sides. We found that the judge rehabilitating the juror, first of all, out of like a thousand jurors, only seven said they couldn't be fair. So the question's meaningless. Everybody says, yes, they can be fair when a judge says, will you? It's a useless question. And we found that that rehabilitation did not, in fact, cure the bias. The bias was identical, even though they'd now been rehabilitated and sworn they put their bias aside. The only thing it did was at the end, when we asked jurors, did your, did your personal views influence your decision in a way that might have been outside the instructions? People who'd been rehabilitated were even more likely to say no even though it, it, they had been influenced. So high level stuff to seat a constitutional jury or a jury that sits with precedent in states that don't have a constitutional guarantee of impartiality. Um, you need voir dire on general topics and case specific topics or else there is a high risk that you will seat people who can't hear the evidence. Rehabilitation does not solve that problem and should not be a practice that courts engage in or allow from either side. And um, questionnaires and things like it are a great tool to get at some of this information more quickly. 
both because they're efficient and because jurors are more likely to be honest in a questionnaire than in front of 30 or 40 other people. Yeah, that's a really important uh, piece of work. And uh, if our listeners want to find that and also find out more about you and what you do, uh, where should they go, John? Yeah, I mean, so for the paper, um, I'll say very selfishly uh, that if you were to put in something like Campbell, Hans, Bourdier, um, you'll find the paper. It's called The Impact of Minimal Versus Extended Vordier. Um, I say that because if you download it for academics, um, downloads are part of what institutions look at to see if the paper has appeal and reach and whether it's valuable research. And so that paper being downloaded at a, at a, a level for my colleagues is better than me sending out a copy to everybody, right? Um, because it shows that people are actually engaging with it. Um you know, if they want to know more about me, if you were to look at John Campbell and then look, for example, on the Social Science Research Network, SSRN, you'll find all the papers that I've published or co-authored. Uh, and we've studied a, a number of jury topics ranging from per diems to anchors uh, to whether or not jurors are susceptible to the, the type of coded language that's used um, to things like this. Uh, and so you can find it there. And of course, you can always just contact me. I'm John at empiricaljury.com. And anybody who writes me, I'm, I'm always, I love this stuff. I'm kind of a nerd about it. So I'm, I'm happy to engage. Well, thanks so much for joining us this morning. This has been incredibly interesting. I've really appreciated it. And um, I'm looking forward to working with you on the case that we're working on together um, and to learning more about this stuff uh, in general. Yeah, thanks so much, John. Well, the feeling is mutual. Guys, I've, I've enjoyed the podcast so much. It's such a contribution to the legal community. And so, you know, being invited on was a real honor and, and I've sure enjoyed it. For more information about today's guests and the topics discussed on the show, please visit our website at www.elevate.net. That's E-L-A-W-B-A-T-E.net, where you'll find guest profiles and show notes. And you can continue the conversation by joining our Facebook group. And if you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you'll subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review. So for now, keep on working to elevate your trial law practice, and we'll see you back again soon.